If you've been with me for very many years, you know, I have a tendency to jump around in the Bible sometimes. Uh, I mean, I would imagine that the vast majority of sermons that are going to be preached this morning are going to come directly from one of the four Gospels. Ours is not. Uh, part of that is because we've done those four Gospel accounts over and over and over again and, and that sort of thing. And, and I just want to challenge people today with the idea that there's a whole lot more to the Bible than just the Gospels. Uh, and one of the most important things that we have are all these epistles that were written by the apostles who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. These are people that actually saw Peter that we're going to be reading from this morning. He actually saw Jesus and he talked with Jesus and he heard Jesus, etc., etc., etc. He experienced Jesus as a person. This is we experience each other. Not only before his death, but after his death, after his resurrection. What we have before us is the testimony of an eyewitness. And he was not the only one. John also experienced all those things. And he testifies of those things in his own gospel. Paul, even though not directly, uh, he experienced the resurrected Christ. Not at the same time the other apostles did, but on the road to Damascus that Jesus confronted him. The Jesus that he had been persecuting and his church that he had been persecuting. And what you find with every one of those people was the resurrection was the thing that turned them. It was so important in the, in, in, in the scheme of everything. And just remember this, if not for the resurrection of Christ, you and I don't have a Savior. We are still dead in our trespasses. The resurrection is one of the most key aspects of the gospel. So much so if you take it away, then there is no gospel. The gospel is worthless. If indeed Christ is not raised himself from the dead... Because he's not only God, he's also man. The humanity of Christ couldn't do what was done. But Jesus said this, I've been given the authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying, because I'm God, I'm going to bring myself back to life. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, this morning, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Aren't those beautiful words? Really? And I want to say this too as well, and that is we always have to keep things in the context of Scripture. In other words, we understand this particular passage in light, in view of what the rest of Scripture teaches about these things. And if we help to put things in context, remembering the study of Romans that we're doing right now, we understand that everything that is coming to pass, that has come to pass, has been according to God's perfect will and purpose. That continues today. It's a scary time that we're in right now. I mean, it is. Uh, I tell, tell you, the people that, that, that I have a real heart for at this point are the people who live by themselves. Most of the time, or very often, they're elderly people. And, uh, and I can't imagine the loneliness that could very easily settle in on you. So I want to encourage everyone to be especially sensitive to those people that fall into that category and make sure you're using your telephone. This is not a time to sit idly by and just let things go on and on. We need to be strength. We need to be encouragement to one another, and that means reaching out by whatever means we have available to us. Just remember, things like this have happened all through history. We have the sense that we're living in a very unique time. Something like this has never happened in the world. That's ridiculous. As a matter of fact, as far as pandemics go, if we compare what's taken place so far in, in regard to COVID-19 and compare it to some of the historical things that have taken place in the past, it doesn't amount hardly to a hill of beans. Just a little over a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu, 1918. There's still a few people living in the world today that can probably remember it. Not many, but maybe a handful of people can remember it. So it's not so far in the great, 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 great distant past. 1918, 102 years ago. 500 million people were infected in the world. 500 million. 50 to 100 million people died from it. Most people have not a clue that anything like that ever even happened before. Part of that is because I think that we've failed people in a lot of ways, and one of those is to teach people history. People don't know history today. 
You don't know history. If you don't know what's really happened in the world before, and you really don't have much idea of what's happening in the world and in, in, in other places than where you're at right now, it's easy to begin to believe that the, the, the time that you're in is absolutely unique and that sort of thing. Another thing I want to encourage all of us as believers to understand, and that is this, is this, this virus has not come contrary to the will and purpose of God. As a matter of fact, it's come according to the will and purpose of God. God is in control. God's always been in control. This is not something that's taken place apart from it. It's not something that's snuck in the back door behind it without his prior knowledge of it. It has happened because he determined that it would happen. He is an almighty and sovereign deity. Period. And he's not subject to explaining everything in minute detail to us. And we understand this, that when things like this come, God is angry. He's angry about the sinfulness of the heart of mankind. You need to understand something. That is everything that's bad, that we would say is bad in this world, happens for a purpose. And part of that purpose is this. It's a partial judgment of God upon the sinfulness of man. And just remember, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That, that all of us deserve, we deserve this. All of us, apart from Christ, this is what we deserve. If God was not merciful and gracious, he would have wiped out mankind before they got out of the Garden of Eden. But he's all-powerful and almighty. He has a multifaceted character that we know something about. Not everything, but we know some things about that character. And part of that character is he hates sin. He abhors sin. You, you think you hate something? Maybe there's some person you hate, or you, you hate a particular vegetable, or you hate this, or you hate that. We don't have an understanding of what real hatred is. God abhors sin because every sin is nothing short of absolute rebellion against him. It's a denial of his power and his authority to rule over that which he has made what he has created. To bring very often his intentions under question. But just remember this this morning. We're here to celebrate salvation. Because God is not only a righteous and holy and just God. He's also merciful and loving and compassionate. And that is what the gospel has to do with. That even though we've earned what we've earned for ourselves, and that is his utter condemnation, and it's true of all of us, he has chosen freely according to his free will to love us and to do everything necessary to uphold his perfect justice and at the same time to save us 
basically from ourselves, from our own sin. There's a promise of a resurrection to come. A resurrection of our own bodies. See, Jesus opened the door to make that possible. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, resurrection for us would not be possible either. Understand that Jesus did all, did all kinds. He did absolutely everything that was necessary to save us. Nothing was left out. Not one jot, not one tittle. He had to do exactly what had to be done. And he did it in absolute detail. Not because any of us deserved it. But because he is gracious and he's compassionate and he's loving. And through the gospel, we become the recipients of that. We know all of this leads up to the idea and the, the truth that eventually there is going to be a great day of judgment when all people that have lived in any time are going to stand before this great creator, this almighty God, and they're going to give an accounting to him of what they've done in their life. I wish I could stand here and tell you this morning that every person that's ever lived is going to be saved and be in, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth. And, but I just can't do that because the scriptures tell us that's just not the way things are going to go. Jesus talks about the contrast between the narrow gate and the, and the broad gate. And he says, many go in the broad gate that doesn't lead to heaven. And only a few choose the narrow way. Scripture is very clear. It's, it's, it's Christ didn't come with the purpose of saving absolutely every person. That was not God's intention. He came for on a mission, and that mission was to save everyone who would believe. If you're sitting here today, if you're another, you're sitting in a church or sitting home. Uh, and, and you're truly a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ and every aspect of all that he accomplished, you're doing it because you are a recipient of the grace and the mercy of God. And that's the only reason. As far as reaction to this virus goes... There should be a distinct difference between how unbelievers are reacting to it and how believers react to it. Death no longer has its sting. Death has lost its power over us. Death is not anything that we need to be afraid of. There's a sense, as we said last week or the week before that, that death for a believer is actually a good thing. 
That doesn't mean we're supposed to go out and purposely take our life or anything like that. But what it means is this, is it's, it's nothing we should dread. It's nothing that we should be terrified of. It's nothing we should panic about. And it's nothing we should do anything and everything that sounds reasonable to avoid it. It's, it shouldn't scare us like it does unbelievers. Now, one of the things you're seeing going on in the world today is the reaction of unbelievers to, to, to being scared to death of death. And let me tell you something. They have good reason to be. Because they don't have the blood of Jesus Christ to cover their sins. They will give an account to God himself face to face. And they will suffer the perfect punishment for their crime. No more and no less. As believers, we're not completely off the hook either. Because, because Christ Jesus has given us a life to live in this world. And we're going to stand before his judgment seat as well and give an account of how we lived our life for him. And we lived a life that was very different compared to that of the average believer. Or if it would be very, very, that people would be very, very hard pressed to see how we were any different than anybody else was. Did we live a life that, in, in essence, would serve to draw other people to Christ? Or did we live a life that, that, in essence, probably drove some people away from Christ? Because very often, the only thing they got from believers was this judgmental, holier-than-thou attitude. I can remember people... Years ago, when I was an unbeliever, sometimes the stuff I saw coming from believers, I'm thinking, yeah, you tell me you believe that, you certainly don't, because I don't see it. You say one thing, and you do entirely something different. Now, we need to understand something. That is, believers make mistakes. We sin. We continue to sin. We studied a lot about that in Romans. And for us, there should be a growing hatred of that sin. Because if we grow in Christ, there's a contrast that grows ever brightly, and that is a contrast between how we are and how we ought to be, based upon what we know and who we know. The sin that you and I should abhor the most is our very own, not the sin we see in other people. None of us has been perfected. Not one of us. I tell you what the world needs right now from the church? To truly experience the love of Christ in ways it does not expect it. People reaching out to unbelieving people around them. Lovingly. Caringly. 
doing things like exposing themselves to the potential of possibly being infected. I tell you, the people my hat's off to are the health care people right now, exposing themselves for the betterment of other people. And I'm going to tell you that every one of them is a believer. But I would imagine there is a, a large percentage of those people who are believers. And they're willing. They're, they're, they're more willing to take extreme risks for the benefit of other people. What a witness that is to their faith, to people who see it. God has sent this for a lot of reasons. Let me tell you, one of those is this, is to strengthen our faith. Another one is this, is to gather people to himself. That when times like this come upon people, they are, a lot of people are a lot more in tune to listen to things like the gospel. We know that's not always going to be the case. That sometimes people are going to react to it negatively. If you, if you have never had anyone in your lifetime react to your presentation of the gospel to them in a negative way, then you haven't done much of it. I mean, we would love it if every time you mention Christ and you explain the gospel to someone, that they would embrace him with all fullness of heart and spirit. But just remember this, even those who were confronted with Jesus Christ face to face, there were those who refused his gospel. It's a measure of the hardness and simpleness of the human heart. That's how lost in sin people are. Just remember that we have an inheritance which is imperishable. It won't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. That should make a very big difference on how we live our life. Not one of retreat, but one of moving ahead and moving on. It's God's promise that's imperishable. In other words, it cannot die cannot go away. It is yours. It will not be, cannot be taken away from you. That's the promise of assurance of salvation. You can be assured of your salvation for one reason, and that's because God has promised to take it, and he's promised to do everything necessary to make it an absolute reality. Just remember that you're protected by the power of God through faith. Does that mean that he's going to keep you from getting the virus? No. Some of our brothers and sisters are inflicted with this, this disease as we're talking. Remember that in, in Egypt, when God brought the plagues upon the Egyptians to bring Israel out, that there came a time of distinction. 
in which those plagues were falling only upon the Egyptians. But in the very beginning, the Israelites suffered those plagues just like the Egyptians did. They weren't set apart. God's doing the same kind of thing now. He's never promised us a perfectly easy, comfortable, safe life. He's promised us that trial and tribulation will come. Not maybe, not perhaps. Definitely. But, because of the promises he has made to us in the gospel, there shouldn't be times that bring fear to our hearts. Again, God has not lost control. He's in control. He's always been in control. When Peter was writing this letter, he was writing to Christians. Did, did Peter, in, did, was Peter's message received cheerfully and wonderfully and graciously by everybody? I mean, he was one of the apostles. He was specially anointed by the Holy Spirit, by Christ, to be one of his principal emissaries to carry the gospel, that, uh, to, to spread the gospel through the known world, to begin to continue the ministry of Jesus after he left. Peter was persecuted severely for his faith because he could not deny what he knew to be true and he refused to do that even under the threat of his death. He was crucified in Rome upside down eventually for one reason and that's because he refused. He refused to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he was a personal witness of it. He was an eyewitness. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus literally. He could not deny what he knew was real. The same thing was true of the Apostle Paul. The same thing of the Apostle John. James was martyred very early on. John didn't die the same sort of death that the others did. There's a sense in which he was not martyred for his faith, but there's another sense in which he was because he endured unbelievable hardship in his lifetime for the gospel. It's been true in every generation. The church has always gone through distressful times, various trials. It's no different today. And that's all this is for you and I. This, this virus thing is just a trial. It's another one of those various trials. For reason, to prove that your faith is real to the unbelieving world around us. That people will begin to wonder and understand that you know something maybe they don't know. 
or more importantly, that you know someone that they don't know. This all-powerful and mighty God. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Have we not experienced that this very morning? Do you understand that there's a sense in which it was easier for the apostles and easier for believers in the first century that actually experienced the ministry of Jesus directly? It was easier for them to believe because they saw with their own eyes, they heard with their own ears. They experienced Christ person to person. You and I, on the other hand, we live on the other end of 2,000 years since Christ ascended back into heaven. You understand one of the things Peter's alluding to here is this, is there's a sense in which it takes greater faith on your part to believe it than it does for me. And we need to be expressing joy filled with the glory of God on this very, very special day. Because He has granted us salvation for our souls. What a wonderful God. What a loving God. What a caring God. I just want to say this this morning. Uh, You know that we had decided, the elders had decided a couple of weeks ago after the governor's orders came out that we were going to Cease worship. If you were here on Thursday night, you know that I was way off par. I had a huge burden burden bearing down on my heart. And that was this, as we were putting people, church people in a position where they were being forced to go against their very deepest convictions. And I didn't believe it was our place to do that. So I encourage you, as we've tried to all along, and that is this. Is we understand that people live in different circumstances. And everyone in this room that's here this morning, they're here for their own reasons and this, that, and the other. But let me tell you, and their circumstances have to do something with that. If your circumstances was different, you might not be here. We need to be very sensitive to our brothers and sisters because not every one of us has been convicted. And let me just tell you this. I really believe the thing we need to focus on here is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit telling me as an individual to do? This is a decision for you to make, not for me to make for you.
And I hope you feel good about the decision that you've made. And I hope the decision you made truly is spirit-driven. And it's not going to be the same decision for all of us. But either Holy Spirit indwells us and guides us and convicts us and strengthens us and encourages us. Or it doesn't. Luther said, and this is just kind of not verbatim, you need to listen to your conscience. Because very often your conscience is the Holy Spirit speaking to you directly, encouraging you, telling you what God's will and purpose is for you today. So have ears to listen and heart to discern and rejoice. It's Easter. <laughs> we can't rejoice today, even in the midst of all of this hogwash going on or whatever it is going on, then there's something deathly wrong with us. Rejoice no matter where you are. Rejoice. Just walk today in the holiness and the greatness of the Spirit in you and just love God from the innermost, deepest parts of your heart with all the love and compassion and, and joy that you possibly can muster. And if you can't do that today, then I don't know what day you possibly could. So blessings to all of you. We look forward to seeing all of you again and of being with you again and hugging you again. This is the thing that's killing me more than anything else, is we are a church about hugging. And now we can't hug each other. <laughs> uh, so if you've been here, you've ever visited us, you know that. that we're all about hugging. Uh, but there's not a lot of that going on right now. But only temporarily. So happy Easter, everyone. Uh, and God's blessing to you. Please rise and join us for our closing hymn.